Hi, I'm Delaney. Hi, I'm Sam, and this is our podcast, You're a Psychopath. Debunking inaccurate media portrayals of psychopathy. In this week's episode, we will be discussing some of the macro consequences of inaccurate media portrayals of psychopathy. While we have been focusing mainly on how this affects laypeople's understanding of psychopathy and how this affects diagnoses and such, there are a lot of broader implications of such false portrayals. Specifically, we will be looking into how this affects the criminal justice system when it comes to juror perceptions of psychopathy and how this affects sentencing, as well as how this affects people's perceptions of mental illnesses as a whole. We will also look into the commodification and romanticization of serial killers and other mental illnesses. And lastly, we will look at the subgenre of true crime media and briefly discuss how this type of media perpetuates racial and gender hierarchies. Like Delaney said, something that we've been kind of hinting at throughout all of our episodes are the dangers and consequences of lay people's perceptions based on these inaccurate media portrayals. And we wanted to kind of substantiate our claims that we've been making with some research. There was a study done by Frenum et al. in 2009, and it was called How to Spot a Psychopath, which, as we've talked about, you can't do that, but people like to think that. But basically what this research found was that the lay people's understanding of mental disorders determines, in part, whether they hold sympathetic or stigmatizing attitudes towards the distress. So what they're talking about there is in terms of juror perceptions or people who are in the criminal justice system, their understanding of a mental disorder will determine how sympathetic they feel for the defendant. So if a defendant is schizophrenic, people tend to be maybe not more sympathetic, but tend to hold them less criminally responsible than they do someone with psychopathy. Mm -hmm. And the research continues to say that the term psychopath has acquired negative connotations within mental health services, and this may discourage psychopathic individuals from seeking appropriate treatment. And furthermore, the lay perceptions of psychopathy may influence the way in which the general public respond to arguments concerning the civil rights and the ethical treatment of patients. So that's kind of something else that we've been hinting at throughout all these episodes is that the lay people's perceptions of psychopathy, whether or not you realize you're being influenced by like the TV shows that you watch or the movies or Mm -hmm. the podcast you listen to, that's going to subconsciously like be in your mind when you're when you're perhaps like a juror and you hear that the defendant has Mm -hmm. psychopathy, like you're automatically going to start thinking of serial killers because that's just how... That's I how guess, prevalent it is yeah, in the media. Yeah. So it's kind of filled this schema. That's right. what, you know. Oh, the schema. schema. That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. So we have this schema for psychopaths, and that puts them in a box and doesn't let people kind of understand and look at the evidence that's being presented. Mm-hmm. Just hearing the word psychopath is going to distract people yeah. from any evidence that is shown, whether it's on the prosecution side or the defense's side. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing that this article found was they used something called vignettes, which are like fake cases. Mm-hmm. And they had a vignette for depression, they had one for schizophrenia, and they had one for psychopathy. And interestingly enough, when they gave these to potential jurors, 97% of them were able to accurately identify the depression vignette. 61% were able to accurately identify the schizophrenic vignette, but only 39% of the participants correctly identified the psychopathy vignette. And that kind of is showing that people really don't understand what psychopathy is. So even when you're given a direct example of a psychopathic case or a psychopathic vignette, it's more likely than not people aren't going to be able to identify that because 
the media perceptions are so like hammered into our brains that we can't distinguish it Mm -hmm. from anything else. Mm -hmm. And this kind of thing generally points to the idea that lay people have a skewed understanding of psychopathy because the way that it's portrayed in the media, like we've been talking about through all of our episodes, whether it's literature or movies or TV shows or true crime podcasts, psychopaths are only portrayed as serial killers or mass murderers or Mm -hmm. people who commit crimes. And as we know, that's not the whole story. But because that's the overwhelming amount of information that lay people get who don't Mm -hmm. study this kind of thing or learn about this kind of thing, that's the only perception that they have. And even when, like, based on our past episode, when we were looking at The Dark Knight and Ephraim from War Dogs, like, they met the diagnostic criteria, but when you're looking at how they presented themselves, they were violent, they were criminal, like, even though, yes, it's technically an accurate portrayal based on the diagnostic criteria that... Dr. Davis scored them through the PCLR, like it's still ingraining in lay people's brains that these people are violent, these people are criminal. Right, because though those are accurate, those that's not the only type mm-hmm. of like psychopath there yeah. is, I guess. There isn't like, I guess, one like archetype, but one classic psychopath. Right. Uh, yeah, okay, John Bronson. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even if you're aware of like, oh, maybe this isn't the most accurate portrayal, like based on media consumption, like you're still consuming these portrayals. And that's and all you're seeing. And they're still creating a schema, whether you like it or not. You right. know, it's happening subconsciously. And this brings us into our next topic, which is discussing how these portrayals are affecting the criminal justice system and how it's affecting jurors' perceptions and sentencing. And specifically, there's something really interesting called the CSI effect, and it can be defined in three ways. The first and most common definition being that the TV portrayal of forensic investigations creates, quote, unreasonable expectations on part of the juror, making it more difficult for prosecutors to obtain convictions. And the second being the reverse CSI effect, which states, CSI raises the stature of scientific evidence to virtual infallibility. So on one hand, you have jurors who are expecting, you know, forensic investigators to be doing the same things that they're doing on the show and like, And when they don't, no, like, and when they don't see that, they get confused. Like, does it, does it ruin their idea of what their job is supposed to be as a juror? Because I feel like a lot of people don't, necessarily anything, understand it's the i think it's more the expectation that jurors have for even like i would say prosecutors and like criminal defense to be presenting this information or of, the way that they present yeah, it. yeah or like like basically jurors think that they know how a court case Is court trial should be what? done how mm-hmm. people how police officers should do their job mm-hmm. how um, forensic scientists should be collecting evidence because there's such a stupid <clears throat> amount of these like Crime shows. Like, yeah, how, yeah, many, yeah. how many different CSIs are there? NCS. <laughs> NCIS. Yeah, I mean, CSI Miami. Yeah, New York. New York. Criminal Minds. Law and Order. Law and Order SVU. SVU. Blue Bloods. Chicago PD. I don't even I mean, even like, shows. even like shows like Castle that used to be on ABC, yeah. like that was more <laughs> of like a comedy, but still depicted detectives and yeah. like the criminal justice system. and Bones. Yeah. House. Know. House. Yeah. There's a bunch of shows like that. There's a lot. So it's very prevalent in the media. And then on the other hand, you have jurors that believe that without fail, like the investigators and such are doing their job correctly. And it's not like evidence can be messed up or that like they might be wrong or something. Which Um, is tough because a lot of the times, even experts and people mm -hmm. who are presenting forensic evidence can be wrong. Like think about the Innocence Project. There have been a bunch of people that have been exonerated through DNA evidence who were wrongfully convicted. Yeah. 
So you kind of have those two parallels. In another study, they specifically look at what is called the cultivation theory, which states that the more TV a person watches, the more likely that the person is to perceive reality similar to what is viewed on TV. And so frequent TV viewing has been associated with increases in fear of crime and criminal victimization and increased prevalence of violence. And using this theory, the authors suggest that it's important to distinguish subgenres, so whether these viewers are looking at reality, like documentary style crime right. shows versus fiction crime shows like right. Criminal Completely Minds made up by writers, and stuff. Yeah. And the, so the study involved 80 jurors serving jury duty and they were shown a criminal trial um, from one court case and they were also given a forensic television viewing habits questionnaire. And what the authors found was that heavier fiction viewers were more likely to acquit the defendant in a murder trial and perceived him as less guilty compared to lighter viewers. And I think there are more like nuances. We'll have this article on our website, but I think this was like very important in terms of the CSI effect because I feel like it's very apparent that heavy viewing of, you know, shows like NCIS and such does affect juror perceptions. But I'm surprised <clears throat> that it made them more likely to acquit. Mm -hmm. Like that to me seems kind of backwards. I feel like the people who are watching all of these shows, whether through like the storytelling or the documentary, usually the people that are being portrayed as the defendants are typically, I feel like guilty mm -hmm. in the shows. And because it's always supposed to end with the bad guy, the good guy catches the bad guy, the mm -hmm. bad guy gets put away. Okay, but hear me out in the sense of the reverse CSI effect. I actually don't even know if it would be the reverse CSI effect, but in terms of like... Yeah, well, yeah, because then the evidence is always pointing to the person being guilty, so people believe that it's more likely to be true when they're in court. Yeah, well, in terms of it is what is happening in reality and why they're more likely to acquit the defendant in this study is because in their expectations and minds, after watching all these heavily fictionized I shows, see. they think they know better than exactly, the and it doesn't I mean see. you yeah. know the it nothing falls into like line as it does in the shows, right? So it's um, I don't even know. So they're trusting their brains over what the experts are saying because they've watched so much fictional television yeah. that they believe they know how it's supposed to go. Yeah, and they're like, well, okay. it didn't fit every box like I know it's supposed to. Because mm. I'm sure trials and the way like court proceedings go, it's much more nuanced and not like gray not areas as compared to either. Exactly, yeah. black and white. Like we have the receipts, we have this right. medical expert testimony. Yeah, and I'm yeah I'm assuming like or I'm sure like actual trials don't run like that. Yeah. So that's where I felt like they were more likely to quit in the sense of oh like they don't we don't really know he's not as guilty as like as we see people we in the shows. We think he should be. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So that's okay. where I'd say that. Yeah. Which is still, in a sense, the CSI effect because it is definitely influencing their views of how mm -hmm. jury cases should go. Yeah. Another important thing that comes from the constant portrayal, inaccurate portrayal of psychopathy in media has to do with labeling effects. So labeling effects come from a sociological theory and basically the label that people assign, it's an identity or role assigned to the person for behaviors or acts done. So it essentializes the actor rather than focusing on the act. So in cases of crime or deviance, the label is a negative stigma. So when someone's caught stealing, they might be labeled a thief or a delinquent or criminal. And that one act becomes the defining part of the person's character. I mean, it's kind of like what we talked about with the documentary with Piers Morgan and Paris. Mm -hmm. Just having 
that name. And that's something that Paris brought yeah. up too, just having that name and the negative stigma attached with it. Like that's something that Paris wanted to separate himself from because he's more than just that one action. Yeah. That's what he was definitely. trying to say. So I guess this is kind of a similar thing. And you were talking about it earlier in terms of jurors' perceptions. Like once they hear that word psychopath, it's like, I've labeled you in my mind already. Right. I hear that word, and now all I can think of are extremely dangerous people, Mm -hmm. extremely violent people, serial killers, people that should be put away. Yeah. But, I mean, it's not just in the criminal justice system. We we even talked about this with some of our pop literature. A lot of people like to label their bosses or people that they work with as psychopaths. And there was actually a study done in 2012, and it found that in this in this study a higher proportion of the they had bullied participants and non-bullied participants Mm. but they couldn't control that just people that had claimed they had been bullied in the workplace and people that said they hadn't so that's a limitation yeah but a higher proportion of the non-bullied participants classified a coworker as a psychopath when using the label compared to when using the behavioral criteria so when people were looking at the behavioral criteria they were less likely to label someone that they work with as a psychopath. But just using the label, they're oh, fine using that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Weird. Yeah. It's basically just overstating the relationship between psychopathy and workplace bullying or even just like atypical workplace behaviors that yeah. like could be like just annoying or rude, something. mean bosses. Right, exactly. <laughs> and it's using psychopathy to describe or explain this type of behavior, which obviously, obviously results in yeah. a bunch of problems. One of them being inflated perceptions of the prevalence of this, which mm-hmm. is, we've talked about this, people love to bring yeah. up prevalence rates and try and like use it to make things right. seem much more intense than they are, even though... And the prevalence rate is literally 1%. psychopaths walking among us. <laughs> They're like, everywhere. Who do you know? Could be the person next to you walking down the street. Yeah. <laughs> Look in their eyes and you'll figure it yeah, out. Yeah, there you go. Ask <laughs> Diane. She mm-hmm. knows. <laughs> and even going off of that, the fact that there are books aimed at the popular market available on the subject of psychopathy and psychopaths at work implies that they're a major mm-hmm. concern, that they're everywhere, which, no. again, isn't true. But no. as we know, anyone can write a book and anyone not be can write a book. Anyone an can expert make a podcast. on a topic. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like really playing into people's fears of such a nuanced and also when you have when these people have these perceptions in schemas of psychopathy being like dangerous and violent like obviously they're going to want to know as much as they can because it's a interesting field and like they want to get in the minds of psychopaths. I mean just the word it sounds yeah, so yeah, interesting yeah. like psychopath <laughs> mm-hmm. like don't you want to know what that means? I sure as heck do. That's why I took that's, our senior <laughs> seminar. we're making this podcast. Yeah, obviously like it's just an interesting topic that a lot of people think they know a lot about mm-hmm. but when they look into it realize. Yeah and especially pairing that with lay people's understanding of psychology as a field yeah they themselves just think they're experts because they either discredit the field or it's just like as diane was saying like social psychology is the perfect field for non-psychologists to study right absolutely scientists yeah 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 huh no excuse me (laughs) that doesn't make any sense yeah definitely a cause for concern also kind of going back to what you're saying about piers morgan and paris I feel like the labeling theory also plays into a self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts. Yeah. In the sense that when you are telling someone, and I felt like Piers Morgan was doing this, like, you're a psychopath, you're dangerous, you're violent, how do you know you're not going to kill again? You're reinforcing this label, this very negative label based in our society, that they are nothing more than, and this is what um, Paris was saying, like, he feels like he's nothing more than his act, his murder. Which, again, very terrible that happened, but you're kind of just, like, forcing them Mm -hmm. to be like, you know what, you're right, 
I am, this is who I am, like, I'm going to accept it because that's all you'll ever think of me. So it's very dangerous and, like, labeling effects happen for everything beyond, you know, psychopathy. Like, when you are telling someone that they're nothing more than, like, a delinquent, a thief, they're nothing more than their illness. It's especially dangerous for younger people who are very impressionable like the kids in high school who like get that kind of like negative reinforcement Mm -hmm. whether it's from like other students or even teachers or even parents like the effect that a label has on a person is much more than just like words yeah like like it affects every aspect of their life absolutely of the way they're socialized and And it's not something you can forget about if you're being repeatedly reminded that mm -hmm. like this is what we think you are this Mm -hmm. is the box we're trying to shove you into yeah And we never really talked about juveniles or adolescents, but that's a big issue or concern with labeling children or diagnosing children with psychopathy is the negative or the consequences and the labeling effects that come with that. Right, which is why... You tell a kid... And that he is has been diagnosed with psychopathy. A parent finds that out. Yeah, they're gonna absolutely they're gonna freak ostracize out and say you can't hang out with that kid. Yeah, you can't, yeah. demand that the school don't let them that kid go to school. Absolutely, you're gonna force that kid to be homeschooled. And guess what? You're probably gonna force this kid into more violent, reclusive, Correct. isolated yeah. things because because he's like one word. Has everyone says I'm a psychopath. Yeah, <laughs> freaking how fucking. Bart. Bart. Bart was like, sociopath. you know what? If I'm going to be the best sociopath. Yeah, if my yeah. parents think I'm a sociopath, I'm going to be a sociopath. Yeah. Granted, it's not as... Pushing them into that label. Yeah, it's not as like funny. And, Instead like, of letting joking. them grow out of it yeah. like people tend to do. You're forcing them to grow in that box of right. being a psychopath. Which is exactly why experts are saying, Don't do, do not diagnose mm-hmm. children, especially with psychopathy, mm-hmm. because you're going to ruin essentially their entire life. Yeah, but I'm sure even with like other diagnoses like I'm sure children with that are diagnosed with ADHD like Mm -hmm. or like depression or like bipolar disorder at a young age like everything comes with labeling effects Mm -hmm. and some of them are very dangerous yeah some more harmful than others yeah yeah absolutely moving away from juvenile labels and kind of going back into psychopathy within the criminal justice system, especially concerning mock jurist perceptions. There was a study done in 2020, so last year, and it said that just the label of psychopathy increased the jurors' perceptions of one future dangerousness and two poor treatment outcomes and had positive effects on sentence lengths and death penalty recommendations, meaning that someone being labeled a psychopath not only increased their sentence length, but if it was a capital trial, made them more likely to be recommended for the death penalty. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. That It's horrid. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely it's, horrid. And it's, it sucks because it's all the, the ignorance and like the misinformation that jurors have about psychopathy. Right. And, you know, there's always probably expert witnesses that come in to try and describe mm-hmm. it to help the jurors understand what it is. But there's no way of yeah. knowing if the jury is actually receiving the information that they're trying to be told. Yeah. Because but- because of the fact that we hear the word psychopath or we have all this media about serial killers that they can't get that out of their head. Mm-hmm. No matter what anyone says, they're still going to be thinking dangerous, violent, needs to be punished. Yeah. And also to, like, tie back in the CSI effect, I know, Sam, we were talking about just, like, the setup of the criminal justice system and how, like, even if you're saying you're bringing an expert testimony, expert witness, like, the way it has been sensationalized in the media, it's always, like, one side's good, one side's bad, and if, you know, this person's bringing in this person, like, 
they're supposed to say this thing exactly. and you don't and know where the, pressure, the biases are. That's the pressure put on experts as well because if an expert is hired by the prosecution, the prosecution doesn't want the expert to just give their own opinion. Mm-hmm. They want that expert's opinion to go with their side yeah. to say, you know what, the defendant is at a much larger risk for future recidivism and violence. Yeah, They don't want them to say, you know, I've assessed this person, I've looked at all their case files, I've done interviews with them, I've talked to people that they know, and I don't think they're going to be a future risk. Yeah. The prosecution doesn't want them to say that because no. they want to win the case. They'll probably say the most general things in terms of like theories regarding that. Like what I'm thinking of is I know there was a researcher well known in the field of memory who was testifying on the Brett Kavanaugh case. Yeah. And I'm sure... I mean, at least I would hope deep down she's like, I believe this woman, she's telling the truth. But like in terms of the prosecution hired her to talk about the false re- or the unreliability of, of memory. memory. Which and she, which it is. It it's is. very unreliable. It is. But it's like when you're presented with the facts like that on the prosecution side, I'm sure people are like, oh, she's an expert. She yeah, knows the about jury memory. knows. Therefore, this woman's individual case is invalid because this woman said some broad theory about memory. Right. Because the jury knows whose witness is mm-hmm. being called to the stand. Yes. They'll call the prosecution's witness yes. or they'll call the defense's witness. So you already have that implicit bias of, oh, this person is testifying for this side. Mm-hmm. It's it's like, yeah. listen, hear me out. This is going way off. But like, it's like when people look at like all the stupid zodiac signs oh. <laughs> and there's like some vague generality yeah. for your sign and you go that's so me uh-huh. like it's the same idea of like bias yeah you're just like looking at something or you're listening to something and you know the source that it's coming from so you're going to attribute it to that source yes okay i see what you're saying yeah and when again when you add in the dramatic crime shows like it's just gonna create more confusion and just like really influence your perceptions yeah So kind of stemming off from juror perceptions, there are much wider perceptions, maybe not wider perceptions, but I feel like switching to a new topic, but still keeping it within psychopathy, NGRI cases, Mm -hmm. which stands for not guilty by reason of insanity. I feel like a lot of lay people believe that this happens often because Mm -hmm. of the way it's portrayed in the media. Definitely. And like documentaries, you know, confessions of a serial killer. People see this and see it recurring and believe that it happens mm-hmm. often. And I'm sure it happens in other shows like oh, yeah. Law and Order. Definitely, definitely. And, stuff. and it's, it doesn't happen often. Mm-hmm. I, I did an entire research paper on this. And Seems insanity... An expert. No, I'm not an expert. <laughs> but I'm just saying from the information that I've found, insanity pleas constitute less than 1% of all felony cases. And the success rate of that 1% is only 24%. Yeah. So it's very much... 1%. Right. Like, it's very much not tried often. And when it is tried, very rarely is it successful. I feel like in the media, Mm -hmm. especially in, like, fictional shows, it's portrayed as being, one, easy to achieve, and two, the after effects of being found NGRI are just people getting away with their crimes. Which is, like, not not what happens. Absolutely not what happens, Yeah. I guess just to simplify it, the five myths that are typically associated with NGRI cases is that one, they're often used, which we've just said they're not. It's easy to prove. Absolutely not. No. If it was easy to prove, It'd the probably success be rate happening a bit wouldn't more be 24%. Often. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, another myth is that it's only used in murder cases. Absolutely mm. not true. Two thirds of all cases used are not murder cases. They're actually just like other felonies. Yes. Uh, um, another myth is that people who succeed in this defense are released quickly. As we know, that's definitely not true. Defendants who are found NGRI 
go to state psychiatric facilities where they're housed during their sentencing and are typically getting some kind of treatment while they're there. And typically spend more time in the psychiatric facility getting help than they would had they not tried an NGRI, had they served served the time for their crime. Exactly. And then the last one is that people who use this defense are faking it. Mm -hmm. Going back to the John Ronson idea of Uh, psychopathy that you can just, you know, fake it and (laughs) all of a sudden you're institutionalized. It's not how that works. Because these people get evaluated by professionals, by forensic evaluators. And these are also people that are clinically trained to use instruments like the PCLR or other sorts of diagnostic tools to assess and know the difference between someone who may have a mental disorder from someone who is malingering or faking it. Mm -hmm. Like, evaluators are able to understand and recognize when someone is malingering versus when someone actually has a mental disorder. Yeah. And another, I guess, controversy within cases of not guilty by reason of insanity and psychopathy is should psychopathy be considered under NGRI? Interesting. So should... Should people who are diagnosed with psychopathy be able to plead plead NGRI? Yeah. And the research is actually very split. Interesting. There's a lot of philosophers and sociologists who say yes. Hmm. And there's a lot of psychologists and forensic psychologists who say absolutely not. Yeah. So a lot of philosophers and sociologists say there's this morality aspect that psychopaths don't have. Hmm. They're saying they don't have the morals to understand what they did was wrong or they lack the moral capacity. So that should allow them to not be held criminally responsible because they don't have empathy, because they don't have remorse, because they lack all these things. They lack the moral understanding. But I guess my argument to that is like, you have to have a moral compass to like say whether you committed a crime or not, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's... When I was doing this paper, it was very difficult to, like... There has to be, like, an intent behind it. Right. And because, like, it's assumed that psychopaths don't have this, like, intent to, like... Yeah, like you are saying, empathy and morality. Interesting. That is really interesting. Yeah, so there's a a bunch of research saying, you know, because they don't have... They don't have a moral understanding, they shouldn't be held criminally responsible. And then there's the other side that's saying, well, they absolutely know right from wrong. Hmm. So if they if they understand that what they're doing is a crime and that they can be put away for it, they should automatically be held criminally responsible. It's not like they're diagnosed with schizophrenia yeah. where your reality is altered, whether it's delusions or hallucinations, you can't understand what you're doing at that time because mm-hmm. that's what you have to prove yeah. at GRI. You have to prove at the time of the crime you were not, one, aware that what you're doing was wrong or breaking the law or two were suffering from some sort of psychosis. episode. Yeah, yeah, psychosis. And psychopathy isn't isn't a like psychotic disorder. Mm-hmm. There's no psychosis no. associated with psychopathy. Yeah. It's it yeah, it was it's a very really interesting because I feel like also that's implying that the only thing stopping people from committing crimes are the morality and empathy aspect. Mm-hmm. But I could be simplifying I haven't read what Sam's read, so I could be simplifying what the philosophers and sociological people are trying to say. Yeah. But I can see how it's very difficult because there's not even an agreement of what's right or wrong, what's, you know... Correct, which is why this is so, I guess, nuanced and hard for people not to understand, but for people to decide what side they're on. Mm-hmm. And especially if, you know, lay people have a poor understanding of not only psychopathy, but mental illness in, in general and mm-hmm. are just like, well, they were in... In quote unquote insane, like they have a mental illness, like they'll probably just try and which use is also that. interesting because insane 
as we both know, is a legal term. It's not a psychological term, and I think a lot of people don't know that. No, I, think I feel like they assume it's a psychological term, like, you know, oh, you're insane. insane. But like, that's... You have schizophrenia is what right. they're trying to... Like, you're hallucinating or something. Right, and I think people just kind of link insane, crazy, psycho. Mm-hmm. They put it all together, and it, it it's not... They yeah. don't all mean the same thing. No, but that's really interesting. Yeah, and... You know, even just the lay people's, you know, understanding of this kind of thing, it interferes with, like we, like I was saying before, it interferes with the evaluation of the facts of the crime. You know, you hear the word psychopath, mm-hmm. you're going to stop listening to the evidence because you already think you know who this person is. Yeah. Yeah. Even if the prosecution throws it out and it's wrong, mm-hmm. even if they're not actually diagnosed, you hear the wow. word, you throw away whatever evidence you hear that contradicts that. That's like a... Scarlet Letter, shall I say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Like, yeah. literally, if you wanted to be a sleazy prosecutor, throw out the term psychopath Absolutely. and guaranteed, not guaranteed, but you'd have a pretty good shot of influencing the jury to think that, you know, this man or person's dangerous and criminal and, like, should be found guilty. Right, and one study even looked at that. They had two self-defense cases, and they used a control group, the control group had no mental disorder mentioned, and the other one had psychopathy mentioned. And just mm-hmm. the mention of psychopathy increased the likelihood of a guilty verdict. Yeah. So we're not joking when we say, mm-hmm. like, just the word being thrown out, whether it's true or not. Mm-hmm. Huge ramifications, especially in the criminal justice system. Yeah. And not only with jurors, with other people too. Judges were more convinced of guilt and had a higher conviction rate in homicide cases where the defendant had a psychopathic personality or antisocial personality disorder. And they also perceived the other presented evidence in the case, so like fingerprint evidence, as stronger than judges in the condition without psychopathy. Interesting. So same case, same fingerprint evidence, but when the judge heard the word psychopathy, they were convinced that that fingerprint evidence was much stronger than the people who didn't have the mention of psychopathy in their case. That doesn't even make any sense. Like, they just, like, held it with more weight? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. They believed that it was stronger evidence, even though it was the same thing. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And it just goes to show how many layers there are to this. Like, I feel like when we first started with this podcast, it was just like, why does talking about this even matter? Like, our opinions about psychopathy in the media. It's just, you know, it's just media. It's just free speech. It's just entertainment. But there are consequences at structural and systemic levels Mm -hmm, absolutely and it's it's just crazy how prevalent and how much it affects the criminal justice system and you know that it has to be bad because there have been there has been so much research done Mm -hmm. on labeling effects on juror perceptions on judges yeah it's because we like to take in this media and like watch it and entertain ourselves I mean, this is all new. No one's... In the past, it's not like they had TVs and computers everywhere. The digital age. The digital (laughs) age. But this is a new era of having the amount of shows and documentaries, having all of this content so easily accessible. Like, it... We haven't experienced something like this and how rapidly, you know, information spreads, false information spreads. Mm-hmm. We're in a total digital age. So it it makes sense that there's so many new studies coming out documenting these effects and their negative consequences. Yeah. Going back to NGRI and the legal system in general, this is... I mean, we were saying the digital age is something new. Psychology and the law being combined and being something that 
go together Mm -hmm. more often than not now, I would say, is something completely new. Honestly, I would even argue that it's because, not because, but there is an increased demand for these types of fields because of the media. Yeah. So like forensic psychology programs are popping up and just like other criminal justice programs. And that's just like a rising field. But like previous to this, there was so much skepticism from the criminal justice system and the legal system and even like the police force. They Mm. didn't want to include psychology in any of those systems because they didn't think it it fit in. Which is interesting, but I also kind of... The only reason I would say I understand their skepticism is a sense of like, it's a very nuanced field. Like rarely is it... That's the thing. It's hard. We never have concrete answers. No. Psychology does not have like... It's not a math problem where Mm -hmm. there's always... A correct answer. Yeah. The amount of there's so much symptoms unknowns. that are oh, that overlap between diagnoses, yeah. Yeah. and it's just like you have to like so many evaluators or like mental health people have to assess and make sure that there's this Consensus. agreement yeah. that this you know we all agree that these were the symptoms and that this diagnosis makes the most sense. Yeah, it is. It's not like this math equation. Yeah, which yeah, I guess you're right. Makes it hard for something like the legal system, which is supposed to be so, this black and white thing. Exactly. That it, it makes sense that they didn't want psychology to become involved. But the the issue is we as people are so complex that you mm-hmm. you have to you have that involved. You need to have that. You need to have that involved because there's more than just a black and white, like, you did this, mm-hmm. you're a horrible person, you should be put away. it's more of a flaw of the legal system and yeah. the criminal justice system. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, there's no way they could have avoided, like, biases and people's misinterpretations of psychology as a science. Right. Um but that's very interesting that there was previous skepticism. Yeah, they they just didn't think that the two should go together. Mm-hmm. Which is weird to me because I, I'm so confused about like what they did before. Well, I guess before if people were experiencing mental health symptoms while committing a crime, they just went to jail. <laughs> they were just criminalized. But, like, but that like now we have accentuated psych- those symptoms and probably made those people worse off. Like they they didn't get the help that they needed. Yeah, and I feel like I that's mean, do they even get a day? No, but I feel like there are better strides towards that. Yeah, because- I would agree. Because because now we have psychology to be like not not even in terms of the NGRI like oh they're in a no, psychosis. but just in general. But just in general, it's like making more sense of people's behaviors, and it's not like <laughs> I don't know why this example came to my mind, but people not being like you're a witch and then and burning them at the right. stake. Right, no, exactly, <laughs> like the Salem witch trials. Yeah, 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 exactly. If they had psychology back then, all those women wouldn't have died. Yeah. You best well, believe. Yeah, I mean, psychology failed us at some points because people thought to treat women's hysteria, they just needed, like, a man's touch or something. Oh, very true, very <laughs> so, true. And there were lobotomies, yep. which we all know uh, <laughs> didn't work yeah. out well. So. so I think it just all comes down to people's unwillingness to see things not as black and white. People want answers. And, and they like, want quick answers and easy solutions. Yeah. And like psychology can sometimes give us that of like giving us a diagnosis or like helping us explain yeah. people's behaviors. Yeah. But sometimes it's so nuanced as we've seen with psychopathy as a diagnosis that some people just cannot they don't have the hold a complex yeah. thought in their head. Yeah. It's too, not too that, much work. Not too that, much work. Not that Sam and I are like all-knowing smart people. No, absolutely not. But 
as far as this topic is concerned, we understand the complexities of it, yeah. and we understand that there are not always concrete Some people solutions. are just very uncomfortable with ambiguity. Yeah, uncomfortable with the unknown. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing that I kind of want to talk about, stemming away, I mean, kind of having to do with psychopathy, but in terms of media, I think it is very prevalent, this romanticization of psychopaths, yes. serial killers, even mental illnesses. Yeah. Because you have all these documentaries or, like, dramatized shows, shows like... I mean, even... 13 Reasons Why. 13 That's not Reasons necessarily why. psychopathy, but Mm-mm. mental illness in general. The Ted Bundy tapes. Yep. Um, Night Stalker. Mm-hmm. Richard Ramirez. Yeah. Um, All the things about my, Dahmer. My friend Dahmer. My Mind Hunter. Mind Hunter. Criminal Minds. I mean, we can, <laughs> we can yeah, keep going. We can keep going. <laughs> Just bring up my Netflix queue. Honestly, my <laughs> list on, on Netflix. Yeah. But there's definitely this weird obsession with right now i'll focus on serial killers because specifically there's an article that's talking about how people love to romanticize specifically ted bundy yeah and the author suggests that this obsession comes from wanting to understand why the killers did what they did and i'm not gonna lie that's that's a pretty good reason that's a great reason that's why i wanted to become a psychology Mm -hmm. major i wanted to understand how people work and i wanted to understand because we have all this media readily available and i've consumed a lot of it i want to know like how does someone just like look at another random person and be like yeah tonight's the night i'm gonna kill you think it's a total natural curiosity yeah oh absolutely Mm. it's just become so much more popular and so much larger yeah i'd say in more recent years Mm -hmm. And an interesting thing this author says is like it almost serves as or like watching these shows and figuring out why these killers are doing what they do. It's a way to self-soothe. So if we know why they did what they did, why Ted Bundy killed all the women that he did, Mm -hmm. it's no longer an unquantifiable horror. Yeah, we can can rationalize it. We can make sense of it. It's not this like big like fear because I think like it is a very like I don't I don't want to say rational not it's not rational no but, but like, in the seventies and the eighties yeah. when like I'm gonna call it the serial killer era because a lot of the more mm-hmm. famous at least American serial killers that we know of came from the seventies and the eighties yeah people and especially women were afraid to walk down the streets without someone mm-hmm. with them mm-hmm. it was a rational fear at that time yeah. but now that we have more. I don't want to say evidence, but maybe a better understanding of this type of thing. And we have all of this media that's trying to explain it. Yeah. People feel more comfortable and kind of can get into like the self-soothing aspect of that. Yeah. And I think I'll talk about this later, but a lot of specifically women, because you're saying like a lot of women were scared in the 70s or 80s. Mm Specifically, women are more drawn to true crime and mm-hmm. just like romanticize serial killers. But we're in two general. women talking about all this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's because the studies showed that these women were more interested in hearing about survival tactics and what to do. And like, honestly, yeah. I think just learning about scenarios to be like, okay. I'm gonna be on guard if some guy ever approached. Like, where did where did it come from for like women to be afraid of when a van when an old man asks you, "Can you help me find my dog?" Yeah, like I would. Yeah. Ne- I'm never gonna help someone find their no, dog. No, and especially like the, just like even a man who I think looks relatively Suspect? creepy. Sus- yeah, yeah, like I'm sus- on guard. Absolutely, and you could say that's. I mean, that's honestly you can just say that the about patri- anything. Yeah. patriarchy. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um. But 
yes, I think people love watching these shows to make it less unknown and less scary. But specifically this article, when talking about the romanticization of serial killers, they talk about this creation of quote-unquote celebrity monsters. And I think Ted Bundy is a great example because eventually what's happening is the killer is getting, so Ted Bundy is getting separated from their act and therefore their crimes. When I hear Ted Bundy, I'm just like, oh yeah, the Netflix show, Zac Efron. Yes, absolutely. And especially when you have such a pop culture figure of Zac Efron, a guy who's associated with high school musical and kid stuff and just like being this sex icon, it's going to minimize the crimes that Ted Bundy did. Yeah, most definitely. And the article even made a point being like, do we even remember the names of the women that Ted Bundy killed? I sure don't. Yeah, I don't I don't I think sure don't. I, can I name only any. know Ted Bundy. Exactly. I only and that's not not just for Ted Bundy. That's for most serial yeah. killers that I'm aware of. Yeah. I only know their names. We are memorializing these yes. terrible yes. murders. Um speaking of memorializing, they're are museums dedicated to this kind of thing? Uh, I listen. My TikTok for some reason. I think, <laughs> I think my phone's listening to me. Yeah. My TikTok recently has been showing me a bunch of videos of these people being like, "I went to the East Alcatraz Crime Museum in Tennessee, and like, here are some of the things that I saw." And it's like John Wayne Gacy's clown suits, mm. Ted Bundy's car, O.J. Simpson's white Bronco. It's all of this. Yeah. And like, we'll kind of touch upon that when we talk about the commodification of, you know, these types of media. But But you're absolutely right. All we're doing is memorializing the murderer, not the victims. Absolutely. And the author goes on to say, like, we're harming the victims twice. Like, first, like, unfortunately, they were murdered by whatever, by Ted Bundy. Yep. And now we are just disgracing them even more by forgetting their names and And only talking about Ted Bundy. Right. And his Um, side of the story. In another article that was, again, talking about the need to stop romanticizing serial killers, apparently they interviewed the friend of Bundy's 12-year-old victim, Kimberly Leach. And she said, you know, we're tired of turning on the news and seeing his face. And the fact that they're making this new movie outrages me, especially because they're using Zac Efron, who's so cute and attractive. Yeah. So it really goes to show. And it's like, how are you not supposed to romanticize Ted Bundy when it's Zac Zac Efron? Efron? Right. Or even if you think about other things like Ross Lynch played Jeffrey Mm, Dahmer, mm -hmm. not even like on the attractive aspect, but like big names. Big names. Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. In Zodiac. Yeah. Like... So many big names are used to retell these horrific stories of these serial mm-hmm. killers and these people. And it takes it takes away everything that they've done. You're, you're absolutely right when it separates yeah. the people from what they've done. Because now we only think of the celebrity mm-hmm. who's played them. And it's for me, it's just really blurring the line of like free speech and press and like the right to make do whatever entertainment stuff with glorifying and commodifying these atrocious murders. Mm-hmm. And like while it may not be illegal, is it ethical? Is it moral? Yeah, where is where it, where like, does, where do these writers and these these directors where do their moral compasses come mm-hmm. in? Do they and, even think about what they're doing? Do you yeah. know what I mean? I don't. I don't want to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're trying to be like tasteful about it and be like, we want people to know the atrocious things and like make sure like this never happens again. But also, like the author was saying, like you are harming these victims again and again right. by making. Not only the Zac Efron movie, but conversations with Ted Bundy. And, like, I think in Mindhunter, they talk about him, like, really hammering home that, ooh, Ted Bundy's so elusive. Like, I want to get to know him. And not Mm -hmm. being, like, it is so terrible, the things he did. Mm -hmm. And, like, making sure we tribute to the people that he murdered. Right. I feel like it's hard for some people to differentiate between 
let's say, the good and the bad psychopath in the media portrayals that we Mm -hmm. have. Like, if you think about when we talked about our movies, like The Joker, Mm -hmm. obviously a bad psychopath. Yeah. But Ephraim, bad person, but not necessarily... Yeah, I think it's like almost like what they accept, because I'm sure people, and I, I think I said this in that episode... At face value, I would not be like, oh, Ephraim's a psychopath. No, because no, no. what he's like, what people would distinguish as, you know, he's hardworking. He just, he's just like wants to make really it big into time. His business. Yeah, yeah, he's just like wants to do the best for his business. Right. And I think in media now, there's this like, or in the article that I found, they were suggesting that there's a growing number of protagonist psychopaths compared to antagonist psychopaths which the antagonist psychopaths would be people like Patrick Bateman from American Psycho, um, Walter White from Breaking Bad. Like, objectively, I think, terrible. And, like, they, like, do crimes and stuff. And probably even Heath Ledger and the the Joker from The Dark Knight. Yeah. Versus protagonist psychopaths, which are more acceptable, such as Greg House from House MD, Dexter from Dexter, and even Sherlock Holmes, I guess he referred to himself as a sociopath. Yeah. But they're heroes, you know. House is trying to he's like diagnosing people and treating people with all these medical issues. Yeah, Dexter works in a police precinct and he does like all the like blood evaluations mm-hmm. or whatever that's called, the forensic evidence of like blood spatter and he's like working to put bad people away and he himself while he does kill people, he only kills people that are bad people Mm. so that makes him like a hero because he's getting rid of bad people but he's also committing murders almost like even though billy from seven psychopaths wasn't was not scored correctly but one of the psychopaths in that movie was like a serial killer who only killed serial killers yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so kind of like that that would be the accepting protagonist psychopath and the article suggests that you know if people are accepting these psychopaths in these heroic contexts some people will start to romanticize them. And not to say that psychopaths in general can't be these amazing doctors or like helping people catch bad guys. It's mm-hmm. more of the fact that they're presenting themselves as having psychopathic traits of like being manipulative and narcissistic, but oh, it's for the greater good. Right, which because we have these examples in like popular media and TV shows like House and Dexter, people become more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And if we go back to Jer- perceptions jurors might find themselves looking at the like positive qualities of someone and make the jurors less likely to convict or like maybe look at hard evidence Interesting. like okay hear me out this type of idea if we look at the sensationalization of the oj simpson case mm. a lot of people knew him as uh, the juice simpson. a great yeah. football player all this stuff, a lot of jurors also probably yeah. knew him as that. They didn't want to believe. They didn't want to believe. They didn't want to look at all yeah. of the DNA evidence that the prosecution was presenting yeah. that proved, and listen, I, I think he did it, <laughs> whatever. That's a whole nother thing. But all the evidence that they had, the jurors ignored it. Yeah, and it's so you have this spectrum of it is it can be extremely harmful to label and to you know, have these negative views of psychopaths yeah. and like force people to have terrible sentencing outcomes. Correct. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are romanticizing actual killers, whether yeah. and whether or not they are a psychopath. But right. if you label them Regardless as that. Regardless of that, yeah. But, and these jurors have the tendency to romanticize psychopaths. And look at the positive qualities or the negative qualities 
in a positive light. Yeah. Because of things like Dexter yeah. or things like House. You ha- you run the risk of acquitting someone who may have actually committed a crime. And is possibly more of a danger to themselves and the greater population. Mm-hmm. Wow. But yeah, that's really interesting. Kind of as I mentioned earlier, I hinted that we would be talking more about like why specifically women are obsessed with and romanticized violent male offenders. In one study found that women find serial killers more fascinating than other male offenders, other violent male offenders, such as I think they put rapists um, and mm-hmm. just murderers, suggesting that you know this fascination with violent male offenders is unique to serial killers. But when the researchers asked women if they would actually pursue like you're romanticizing these killers if they would actually pursue the man there most of them said no they would never engage with this type of person which suggests that it's mainly based in fantasy yeah and so they kind of also went into how trauma and internalized sexism can explain you know women's fascination with serial killers so it also supports that they found that women who have experienced traumatic events are fascinated with serial killers. So the findings suggest that this fascination may be one way for women to regulate their emotions regarding, you know, intimacy and discomfort. And in terms of internalized sexism, the results also suggest that women have this fascination with serial killers. It may be based on... I mean, I wonder if this stems back to, like, the self-soothing idea, mm. maybe, of, like... Women who have experienced trauma, they become fascinated with someone who like and it's like it's, gives other women trauma. Yeah, and it's maybe not it, uncommon for women who experience traumatic or sexually violent situations like that to still go back to their abuser or to sympathize for the abuser. Yeah, going off of the romanticization of these characters, I think a big thing that is especially prevalent in, you know, the digital age is the commodification and the normalization of this media. For example, there's something called CrimeCon, which is actually happening this June. You can, you know, purchase a standard ticket for $379. A ridiculous amount of money. But if that's, like, if you don't want standard, go for platinum, which is a whopping 1600 This is not an advertisement for CrimeCon. No. Anyway, basically what happens at this event is they bring in a lot of guest speakers, like people who do true crime podcasts, but also like a lot of criminologists, forensic psychologists, and the crime con claims to what talk about psychology and victimology and the methodology of like yeah. solving crimes. And I think they'll either take you through like you can look at cold cases or you can look at, you know, probably famous cases like Ted Bundy to kind of basically what we we're saying, get into the minds of these killers. And what's even worse is they have something called Crime Cruise, which is a three day, like a weekend trip around the Bahamas. And it's basically like one giant murder mystery party. They look at cold cases. Crime Cruise is an all-inclusive three-night Bahamas cruise aboard a Royal Caribbean ship, which that's kind of nice. But the Crime Cruise is, quote, packed with deep dives into cold cases, all while surrounded by the best true crime fans in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's a bunch of true, true crime <laughs> fans all getting together on a cruise ship and, and talking about cold cases. They go on to say, from world-class presenters to true crime trivia to unique onboard, ex- onboard experiences to dinners where debates about your favorite cases 
never have to be forced. If they have to be forced in general, maybe you shouldn't even be talking about it. Um, Maybe people don't want to hear about it. Right. But they go on saying, you're in for an unforgettable vacation with people who will likely become lifelong friends. To be honest, I didn't think vacation and cold cases and true crime would belong in the same sentence. No, me neither. Also, <laughs> they um, their website for the Crime Cruise 2021, if any of you are interested, they're doing mm-hmm. one in October. Um, it's called Hot Sun and Cold Cases. And some of the cases they're looking at are Jack the Ripper, John Bonet, the Zodiac Killer, Black Dahlia. And these are all, I feel like, aren't these cases discussed too often anyway? Yeah. Why, why do we need to have a cruise where people are just sitting around talking about these cases that, listen, if they haven't been solved for however many years, are they really going to be solved soon? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I don't think so. That reminds me, my mother, bless, bless her heart, <laughs> she bought this board game that was like, okay, think of an escape room, but it's a board game, but it's like interactive, like, Basically, they just give you, like, sheets of paper with, like, clues on it. Oh! And, like... There's, like, three different escape rooms in the game, right? And they, like, give you a website to go to, and you're just, like, looking at all this evidence. But it's, like, based off of apparently, like, true murders or something. And it was so funny when my mom's like, oh, like, I bought this board game. I think it would be fun for us to play. And I was like, don't you think it's a little weird that, you know board games are capitalizing off of the murders of these people she's like i just thought it'd be fun i go yeah i'm sure it's fun maybe like the idea Mm -hmm. but isn't there a little bit of ooh, that's kind of weird yeah like for my own pleasure let me and like i'm sure you have people that are genuine like i want to solve this case even then i still have issues with that it's because like you're literally a random person why do you think you're better than all these investigators but also don't you just feel weird don't you just feel weird and that's what I, I feel, feel like weird. this entire cruise is. This is full of weirdos. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> interesting people mm-hmm. will say. I'm trying to look up previous programming schedules, but nothing is coming up, which is kind of annoying. Yeah, but like, oh my god, the amount like what we're saying for CrimeCon, you can get platinum tickets for sixteen sixteen hundred dollars. And it's so annoying because I think I looked at some of the guest speakers and they're like real, (laughs) they're real people, but like they have like, like this one, she holds a BA in journalism and politics and does all this stuff. She's a private investigator and she talks for all these well-established news articles. And this other dude, you know, he currently serves as the director of state investigations and the statewide commander for the, for some prosecutor's office and the Ohio Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. (laughs) Great. What a a great state. But like, they are like very well established in their field and they're just like, yeah, let me go to crime con. Yeah, like who... (laughs) Who in their right mind is going to pay almost $400 to walk around and talk to people who do true crime podcasts? Weird. It's so sensationalized. Because yeah. I get like but, and Comic-Con I'm sure as a, a thing. A bunch of people go to CrimeCon mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and go on the crime cruise. Yeah. I mean, you have true crime podcasts like My Favorite Murder. Um, crime Junkie. Crime Junkie that have an insanely weird cult following. And one of the articles I looked at um, titled, Captured by True Crime, Why Are Women Drawn Details of Rape, Murder, and Serial Killers? Because when you really think about it, it's like kind of sick that women, I mean, at face value, you're like, it is kind of weird for people to be obsessed with such sick and twisted, yeah, you know, just, descriptions of rape murder and serial killers and basically what the article found was that kind of what we were saying earlier was that a woman fears becoming the victim of a crime so 
She's going to take in any information she can to figure out how to avoid that? Yes, to learn strategies and techniques to prevent becoming murdered. Um, but unfortunately, I think the, the negative thing they found of this, a consequence they found was that with each true crime book or show, I'm sure, or podcast that a woman consumes, she learns more about another murderer and his victims, and thereby it's increasing her fear. She's becoming hypervigilant. And be like putting in the yeah. back of her mind like that crime is rampant, that she should be afraid of being murdered. Yeah. And it's just like this negative I don't know if negative feedback loop is a no, right word. But yeah, yeah. But it's like absolutely. yeah, she's going to self soothe, to self soothe her feel to But learn. then it makes her think that it's happening more often, which freaks her out, and then she goes back to consume yep. more. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Very dangerous cycle. Yeah. Something that I wanna go back to as I was continuing to explore the Crime Cruise <laughs> website, there's a specific article welcoming a citizen super sleuth <laughs> named Gemma Hoskins to the Crime Cruise. She's joining them on the 2021 cruise to answer the question on everyone's mind since the debut of the Netflix docuseries, The Keepers, which I do have on my list. I have not started Wait, watching. Wait, I think I did yes. add that to my and list. And the question is, who killed Sister Kathy? Mm. And here's, here's what it has to say about Gemma coming on board. This is very personal to me, says Gemma. Gemma was a student at Archbishop Keogh High School when her beloved teacher, Sister Kathy Sesnick, was murdered in November of 1969. Since then, Gemma has dedicated her life not only to finding Sister Kathy's killer, but also using her newfound investigative skills. Newfound. Don't, right, don't who? know what those are. <laughs> to help others find answers. I believe that is why I'm here. If I can use what resources to have to find the truth, <laughs> that's my purpose on earth. This is Gemma. <laughs> it's so extreme. Like, yeah. your whole purpose is to solve this one case that is just like... It, but it's people are... Fault uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> it's putting fault on the investigators and, like them that they didn't find the evidence well enough when which what also, if maybe maybe the evidence just doesn't line up and there's no way to actually like find that black and white like answer of like this person did it and this maybe is, simply it is literally impossible this is also putting distrust yes in, in the criminal justice system to deliver justice putting it into the citizen super sleuth hands of Gemma Hoskins. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about commodification and that kind of thing right now too. The website literally says, this is when the cruise sets sail, which gives you plenty of time to binge read Gemma's new book, Keeping On. Yeah, she which made- hits the shelves this summer. She made like, a whole book and like- A book, a docuseries. When we were talking about <laughs> um, Paris's mom, and yeah. how she made a whole book about her experiences with a psychopath son. And has son. been involved in multiple documentaries. Yeah, it's like, because that was the biggest thing for that documentary. I was like, what was her purpose? Because it wasn't for closure. She's no. still talking to him. Correct. Maybe it was part of the grieving process, but she's done a lot of other things. And like, yeah, you could argue it's for like awareness and maybe it was more par on Paris's behalf of wanting to set the record straight. Right. But even then, it's just like weird. Yeah, and especially with Gemma too, like... It's how how can I commodify my grief and pain? Yeah. Which is weird. Disgusting. Why do you want to keep reliving that? If this was, if, if sister Kathy was Gemma's beloved teacher, <laughs> why does she want to one, keep reliving this information? Cause she already, I'm assuming <clears throat> helped make the docu-series on Netflix, but also is now going to be a speaker on crime cruise and has written a book about it. You're taking this horrible experience that you claim you are deeply affected by but you're going to make money off of it. How can I monetize my trauma? That's capitalism. I, I don't understand that. That's crazy. Yeah. Going back to what you're saying about Gemma and the citizen sleuth. Yeah. 
kind of devaluing the effectiveness of the criminal justice yeah, system. Yeah, I think also you can argue that on the other side of the spectrum is that it's putting an immense amount of faith in, you know, police officers and just yeah. as a structure, the criminal like prisons and criminal justice system as a structure and institution because when you we're we're consuming all of these shows that like where the good guy gets the bad guy yeah and they get it right every time but also you're expecting that to happen but at the same time there is a bunch of other media on the other side of that that's telling you the criminal justice system won't do Mm -hmm. what we need it to and also from like a more like broader sociological stance it's implying that the way way justice is served and the way that it's supposed to happen is that you incarcerate people you punish them you rely on these institutions to provide the victims with justice and peace which unfortunately isn't the case i mean we can even look at ted bundy and all of his victims he's being memorialized whereas the victims have no sense of like justice and that's where i digress but like things like restorative justice and transformative justice come into play because the criminal justice system is just relying on violent means of punishment to provide victims which it's hard in a system where that's really the only true sense of justice we have. But here's the other thing. In my in in my forensic psychology class, I had to um, do an assignment looking at um, sentencing and like maybe reforms to suggest for the criminal justice system. And one of the articles that I read was talking about the fact that a lot of victims, when asked about like, oh, are you happy that this person got put away for so long? They say no. They'd rather have that person be sent somewhere where like rehabilitative yeah 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 like a rehabilitative facility or mm-hmm. maybe it's trying not just to them understand being locked away the unlawfulness of their mm-hmm. actions like a lot of victims are not happy when someone just gets put away without like help yeah. if that makes sense like that's not what the victims are looking for because mm-hmm. it's not teaching it's not that person anything. a lesson no it's just putting them away for x amount of years and then letting them back it's out. like some disgustingly violent timeout yeah yeah <laughs> like like they literally not to get too political or sociological but i think prisons have really become this solution to all of these problems in terms of like yeah we incarcerate the mentally ill because we don't really know what to do with what them. to do with them mm-hmm. we incarcerate violent people but also i mean this is a shift that we need to be tougher on crime mm-hmm. and that these people deserve to be locked away and so it's hard like i understand that there're not many options in terms of like relying on these institutions to serve yeah. as justice yeah but these podcasts and just like shows in general really reinforce the idea that the police are there to protect us that mm-hmm. in that uh, prisons are there to rehabilitate people and that that's the best way for justice to be served. Yeah. And what kind of how I was saying in the intro that these podcasts reproduce racial and gender hierarchies is that when you have the consequence of these podcasts making people believe that the police can be trusted, unfortunately, especially in the time of 2021 and 2020. That's not the case. No, there was a lot of unfortunate police brutality mm-hmm. and police violence against predominantly people of color. Yes. But unfortunately, you have people that listen to these podcasts and take away that the criminal justice system almost kind of like the CS, not even, I mean, I guess the CSI effect in the sense that it's this virtual infallibility. It's like the police are right. Like the police are there to protect us. But that's you know? only true to certain populations. Yeah. Which is, I, <laughs> I'm not like the most sociology-ish <laughs> person over here, but the the reinforcement of the notion that like the police will handle it mm-hmm. is, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like historically only applied to white, white people. people. 
Definitely. Yeah. Most yeah. definitely. And that was another thing that an article I read was talking mainly about how true crime documentaries looking at like my favorite murder, they have become, quote, a vexed site of white feminism, erasure, voyeurism, and carceral feminist ideology. So in this article, the authors discuss how true crime podcasts reinforce notions of white femininity and how a lot of times when you're looking at or when you're listening to these podcasts, the woman who's unfortunately murdered tends to be that of a white woman. Yeah. And she gets the attention and she gets portrayed as this innocent, pure, like, good girl. Yeah. And the authors go on to state that white feminist true crime reproduces the hegemony of interpersonal, instantaneous, and spectacular violence. In doing so, the storytelling erases harm that occurs across scales and that is committed by states, structures, discourses, and corporations. So not only ignoring just the harm that happens to, I would say, people of color and women of color, but how this harm goes beyond just the individual murderer or whatever. There are institutions and structures that are upholding these violent acts. And the author goes on and emphasizes that it's, the podcasts are really focused on the individual who committed the crime, and it's never giving responsibility, like I was saying, to the other structures that also contribute to this harm. Yeah. And kind of how we were stating earlier about why women are so obsessed with serial killers and true crime podcasts is because they want to learn, you know, strategies and techniques. The author goes on to say, yeah, that's a great idea, but it's really putting the responsibility on the individual, on the woman herself to learn how do I get out of these situations rather than And like, also implying that if you do get into one of those situations, it's completely your fault. Exactly. I mean, that rape culture, like that is yeah, a big thing. Yeah, very true. And and like I was saying with Sam earlier, like these podcasts are really enforcing the notion that state punishment is the best response to anything. harm to victims. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To really anything. Yeah. And, you know, the policemen become the saviors and it's promoting the idea of carceral feminism, which is a politics that uses feminist critique to validate the prison industrial complex punishment and incarceration because unfortunately there are no other avenues of justice that, that women we, yeah that we know of and that are popular and mainstream enough right um and that are or seen accepted too yeah, yeah yeah right exactly accepted and to end she she talks about a lot of other things but she says at its best true crime offers a feminist space to grieve and organize and at its worst true crime reproduces reproduces narratives of death and trauma for the entertainment and pleasure of others i know it's a big one yeah it's a big one because i think yeah. as much as we want this mind-numbing content we really are perpetuating harm against communities And I feel like a lot of these stories only focus on specific communities. You were saying Mm -hmm. harming communities because other communities aren't as represented in this popular media culture that we have. So even even if the, the, the representation of the white women in these spaces isn't necessarily good, it's completely completely erasing the harm that is specifically done to black women, to indigenous women, to Asian women and such. So in terms of, you know, true crime media perpetuating or reinforcing these racial and gender hierarchies, you have this belief and notion that kind of what this author was saying, that there's this white femininity and that, you know, the white woman that dies in these... Basically, I just don't think that true crime podcasts have the nuance to discuss and granted it's not like they're advertising themselves as intersectional feminist podcasts right. but for example the the outro for my favorite murder is stay sexy and don't get murdered 
What? <laughs> like, how absurd. And Stay sexy and don't get murdered? The author is like, this phrase perfectly exemplifies the white feminist turn in true crime media. The slogan emphatically, like, it's like fake feminism, mainstream feminism of like, yeah, like, like what? stay sexy and you won't, and like, just don't get murdered. That sounds like some like Instagram influencer shit. Yeah. Like, what um, what and, does that mean? Stay sexy and don't get murdered? <laughs> and the author is like, this slogan emphatically insists that listeners have the right to exist in the world in their chosen expression. So like, yeah, like women be sexy without facing the threat of reality or reality of homicidal violence. But is it not also implying that the people who are sexy are the ones that are more likely to be the victims? Stay mm. sexy and don't get murdered. As if you're ugly. If you're ugly, you're not going to be murdered because nobody... I think it's more trying to suggest that you have the right to like be sexy and like live in your feminine presenting gender without feeling like you're going to be... Ashamed? No, not without feeling scared that you're going to be attacked based on... It, not if you're scared that you're going to experience gendered violence because I think a lot of... Yeah or at least in this context, the author was talking about how a lot of the harm that happens or that's documented in these podcasts is violence against women. Yeah. And that's a lot of, that's a big reason why women are watching or listening to these podcasts Mm -hmm. is for techniques. But again, I don't really like the stay sexy thing. I don't either. It's like to be empowered, but like, it just doesn't make any sense. No, I don't like that at um, all. It's just like, yeah. Almost as if it's like empowering for women to consume these narratives of violence against women. Yeah. Like what? Patriarchy what and capitalism, the root of all evil. And do these do these women that are making this podcast feel like they're doing something grand? Probably. Yeah. Like how? Again, the commodification. Yeah. But it's like this twisted thing of like empowerment. But not the, like, like not though. How so? Well, you said twisted thing of empowerment. It's empowerment, but not. It's not real empowerment. Right. It's It's also basing like, yeah, your worth on being sexy. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. If you're not sexy, you're not going to become a murder victim. It's. So stay sexy and don't get murdered. (laughs) I'm telling you that. Listen, maybe that's just me, but I. The continual narrative of, like, jokes being made in TV shows and things about, like, the fat kid is never going to get kidnapped because nobody wants to kidnap uh, a fat kid. Like, this yeah. is the same idea to me. Stay sexy and don't get murdered. Like that. Yeah, I don't know if they're saying that. I don't know that that's what they're saying, but to me, that's the same idea as, like, the fat kid's not going to get kidnapped. Like, no, be ugly. <laughs> like, that. what they should, like, if they're, if they think that. The narrative is that sexy people get murdered. Right. They would be saying, don't be sexy. But I think they're trying to say, you don't have to worry about these things happening. Well, correct. You don't have to worry about dressing provocatively or like being empowered sexually and yeah. worried that someone that, you know, the guy you thought you were going to home go home with is actually a serial killer who's going to rape you. I think that's the take that they're trying to get, but I yeah. totally understand why you would be like, well, what are they saying about people who aren't sexy? Yeah, well, right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But all in all, I think true crime podcasts, Netflix documentaries. Crime Con, Crime Cruise. Books, <laughs> books about this stuff. It's just, as I said earlier, I think it's blurring the line between free speech, but also just like the morality and the ethics of talking about this subject. 
Right. It's very, very, I feel like, very hard to really pay tribute and, like, want to... Whether Do the you're right t- thing. Mm-hmm. Whether you're trying to provide an educational take or, like, make sure women have the capabilities to, like, protect themselves. Or, like, respect the victims. Because yeah. Because that's one of the things... On CrimeCon's website, like, one of the things that they say on their like about pages that like paying respect to the victims and the police officers and whatever is at the forefront of all of this but i feel like if that was really true would you continually be bringing up these cold cases or continually talking about wonder like what do the families think right like not that i know you have to like get rights to movies and stuff i guess to the ted bundy cases are old like maybe it's just like fair game yeah and maybe it's unfair of me to assume that people wouldn't want to have their story told told as a show or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Even then, when it's intentional, I feel like there are unintended consequences, whether it's the reproduction of these gender and racial hierarchies or the idea that prisons and police are the saviors for all our problems. Mm-hmm. There are consequences beyond the individual. Maybe yeah. for the individual, like I know you talked about that study about how most victims don't actually didn't actually want their perpetrator to go to prison. Like, they didn't think that was the best solution. Right. They'd rather have time and money spent mm-hmm. for rehabilitation services. I'm sure there are a few that are like, no, lock him away. I never want to see him again. Right, of course. And, like, great. That's great for the victim if that's what they want. But it's still perpetuating other forms of violence. Yeah. And kind of what we're saying in the first episode, like, we're not saying to stop watching these shows, to stop consuming true crime podcasts. Because we can't stop people from doing that, and we're, we're going to keep doing age, it. We're in the digital age. But we're going to keep doing it, that too. That, too. I'm not going to stop watching this I stuff. think it's just, like, important to take a step back and really think, even if it's, like, you can really just be like, oh, it's just media, it's just a movie, it's just a show, like, it's just, like, interesting. But subconsciously, that it's not just that. No, and it, as we've demonstrated by talking about how this affects juror perceptions mm-hmm. and going back to psychopathy, how this pr- affects lay people's understanding of psychopathy yeah. and how, you know, this media is commodified, there are larger, large structural consequences and implications yeah. of... Something that could seem so small mm-hmm. but affects so many different different systems that it's just it's important like you said it's important to be aware of what you're consuming what the implications are Mm -hmm. that like the author the writer Mm -hmm. the director is trying to get you to understand you have to I don't want to say you have to pay attention but it's important to start paying attention because things are only going to get worse if people don't start they bleed into every aspect of your life like you watch one show where they pathologize one person's character, throw out the word psychopath. Mm-hmm. You have in your head that, that you have that schema that that's what a psychopath is. Right. Your boss does it, you call him a psychopath. Right. Next thing you know, <laughs> you're on a jury. <laughs> they throw the word psychopath out. But like that that could happen. Yeah. And like as we were talking about in terms of like broader implications for other mental illnesses, like this happens for people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia. Yep. That same pathway. Yeah. And it's just, it is a lot bigger than it seems. And that's honestly why we wanted to make a podcast about this topic is because there are such large consequences that go beyond just misunderstanding a diagnosis. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Unfortunately, this is our last episode for our podcast. Thanks to our professors, Dr. Davis and Dr. Brenner, for assisting us and encouraging us to pursue this project. Please check out the resources page on our website for more information about some of the topics we've discussed. Bye. Bye. See y'all never.